left off in Isaiah last time, we started chapter 40, and if you remember, um, chapter 40 starts kind of a brand new, um, brand new side of the book of Isaiah, and remember, just like we can divide our, our Old Testament, first 39 books, uh, Old Testament, and the next 27, New Testament, uh, really the same way in, in the book of Isaiah. So when we start chapter 40, it's like we're starting the New Testament of our Bible in a sense, in that we have hope fulfilled. We had, we had a lot of this doom and gloom in chapters 1 through 39 uh, of impending judgment, of all these armies coming on them, and uh, a lot of bad things happening. But then in chapter 40, all of a sudden we start to hear a lot more of not necessarily the doom and gloom of the things coming, but the hope and comfort of what is going to come uh, to them, to all the people of God. So that's where we are. So if you look at chapter 40, verses 1 and 2 is where we focused our attention when we first started. So I just want to read those for you. And then verses 3 through 11 is where we'll focus our attention today. Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. If you have a brother or sister or multiple, uh, I wonder if you can look back on a time when you had an argument with them. Is that possible to remember a time like that? Uh, so it's, it's kind of common that we have arguments with our siblings. Um, uh, I kind of chose to stay out of it for the most part. I was more the silent one in the background, and when things went wrong, I just pointed the finger at them silently. Uh, uh, but I wonder if we can imagine a scenario like this, is that there are two, two kids, and they, they both have been saving their money, and they get their little piggy banks out, and they count, and they've both saved up $5. And so they sit there, and they count as you do, and you put all the change in little stacks, you know, and all the stacks represent, you know, $1. And so you have all these stacks and they both count them up and they both look different, but they both say, okay, we have $5. And so the first one says, the older one says, okay, I have $5. And the younger one looks at her stack and says, well, I have $10. And the older one says, no, you only have five. And she said, no, I have 10 because daddy promised me when he gets home, he's going to give me $5. So I have $10. The younger one, knowing the character of the father, says, you better not cash in on that until you actually have it in your hand because he's made me promises before, but I didn't actually get it. And you see, the younger one was counting a promise as already fulfilled. I have $10. The older one was skeptical, thinking, I don't know, better wait until that actually gets to me. We have in this text a promise from the Father. And that promise is comfort. And the comfort is salvation in Jesus Christ. There's a couple different ways that we can look at the promise given to us by the Father. One is counting that promise as mine fulfilled. Or another is skeptical, waiting and looking and searching for that thing, not knowing if it will actually come. God has promised his people comfort. This in summary is what we said last time. A soul is comforted by beholding the righteousness of God in his anger over sin, producing grief and mournful repentance that clings by faith to nothing else but the grace of God found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we said last time. 
And we have this promise given to us. And what we're going to see in the text here, these next several verses, verses 3 through 11, is we're going to look at the character of the one who made the promise. Maybe a little bit about who he is. And this is intentional, and this is how Isaiah has lined this out. And, of course, this is how God wants us to understand it. So verses 1 and 2 are basically a summary of God's promise of what he's going to do for the people. And then in verses 3 through 11, he kind of gives us reasons to believe and cling to that promise. Okay, so let's look at it. Let's read, first of all, verses 3 through 5. And in this, we're going to see your first point here in your notes, if you're following with me there. The first thing we'll see is this, is that his plans, that is God's plans, the Father's plans, will not fail. His plans will not fail. Verses 3 through 5. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So even when we read this, can't you hear how definite this sounds? It says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. It will be. There's no doubt about it. All flesh shall see it together. It, they will. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Stamp. That's, that's it. What more can you say than the mouth of the Lord has spoken, and so shall it be. So God's plans will not fail. But we know that we're familiar with this little passage here. Um, I, I just want to show you in the New Testament how the New Testament authors understood this passage. Matthew 3, 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching of the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So Matthew understood in recording this that John the Baptist was the literal fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet. Don't make any confusion, there was no other. Isaiah was talking about John the Baptist. Luke 1, verses 76 and 79. Now this is his father, John the Baptist's father, giving praise to God and, uh, about the child, about John. And it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. And here's how John the Baptist prepared the way of Jesus. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet to the way of peace. I want you to think for a second. I got a call the other day during uh, our karate class in here, and, uh, and it, was, it was Amanda. And uh, No, I take that back. Our class hadn't started yet. I was, out, I was outside talking to some people outside. I was about to come in, start the karate class. So I was here with uh, Jane and Lena, and Amanda said, um, there's guys outside 
in our front yard with flashlights. And so I immediately, I, 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 I get, I don't know, something comes over me that's like, I don't know, one of these superhero movies <laughs> where it's like all of a sudden I rip, you know, I have the clothes on and I, I'm flying over to the house to kind of save the day. In my mind, that's what's going on. And so, but I call because uh, I want to, because uh, this was a text that she first gave me. And, and so I call and I say, what's going on at the house? And she says, yeah, there's, there's guys out here with, these, with the flashlights and I don't know what they're doing. You know, I have the motorcycle for sale in my front yard. They were, they were saying maybe they're, maybe, I don't know if they're trying to steal it or what they're doing. But, you know, anyway, it, she's at home with the baby and it's dark outside. And what am I going to do? And so here's what I think. Nothing will stand in my way getting to this house and figuring out whatever these guys are doing, right? Here's the reality, though. Something can get in my way. I could go out to start the car and it not start. I could go drive down the road and get a flat tire. I can't make it. No matter what my level of passion to get and to save my family, it is unlike the Lord's passion to save us. Nothing can get in his way. Don't you see that's exactly what the text is saying? Listen, listen to what it says. In the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. That is, the way that's being prepared is the way that the Lord is coming to us. Not us coming to him, but the Lord coming to us to rescue us, to save us. What shall get in his way? It says, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. Why? So that everything is perfectly flat, perfectly straight. There is nothing in his way. He will come right to us, directly to us, to save us. Nothing will get in the Lord's way to save his people. Amen. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is in your notes here. I think it's very important that we understand that when God comes to us with the comfort of salvation, He comes perfectly and He comes just at the right time to save. Isn't it amazing looking back on history? And Jesus came at that particular time in history and no other. But it was planned. John the Baptist came preparing the way of the Lord, and Jesus came. It was exactly just how he intended it to be. And nothing was going to get in his way of getting to us. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Acts 2, 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was God's plan, and it was perfectly timed. But then it says, and all flesh shall see it together. I think this is a little bit of a confusing uh, statement here. All flesh shall see it together. Were we, were we there when Jesus came? We weren't. We weren't there when John the Baptist came, so we didn't see it. So how did all flesh see it together? Well, all flesh will see the accomplishment of God's salvation. How and when? I think there's two things. Number one, I think there's a global nature to the gospel. I think this is what all people, that is, there is no place that will be out of the scope of the salvation of Jesus Christ. 
That is, all people, all types of people everywhere will see the salvation of God. And then the second thing is what's called an eschatological nature, that is, according to the end of all things. I want to read uh, uh, Revelation 1, 7 and 8. It says, Behold, he is coming. See if you can hear the same kind of, the same kind of, all flesh will see him. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those whom he, who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. We, don't, we can't make any mistakes here about what's happening when Jesus Christ returns. Even those now who live and die without proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ one day will see him in glory. All will see him in the fullness of his glory. And one will rejoice at his glory and the other will shout and wail in torment of their soul because they didn't see it beforehand. All flesh will see the glory of God one day. For us who have faith in Christ, it is to our joy that we see the glory of God. First thing I want us to see, and I think the first thing that Isaiah wanted us to see, is that God's plan cannot and will not fail. His plan for salvation is definite. Nothing and no one can get in his way, and that's where we lead next. Verses 6 through 8, let's read it. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The second thing about God is not only will his plan not fail, but his words will not fail. God's words will not fail. They cannot fail. We see a few different things here. It's, it's really difficult. There's a lot of different characters involved here. I don't know if you picked up on that. The first we had in, in the first two verses here, verses three, three, uh, three, uh, well, three, four, and five, first three verses, um, is that there is a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. That's, that's a character right there, and we know that's John the Baptist. And then a voice cries. This is a second character. And I said, what shall I cry? There's a third one. So there are three different things going on here. So we have John the Baptist, of course, the voice of the prophets. And then a voice says, now this is God. A voice says to someone, that is to Isaiah, cry. And I said, that is Isaiah said, what shall I cry? And here's what he shall cry. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Okay, so we get that. So the grass is people, that's us. The flower is what? Look at your text. Its beauty is like the flower of the field. Now, if your version doesn't say beauty, it says something different because all the major translations have a different word here. It's kind of, it's not all that common is that all the different translations have different words and none of them agree on this word. Instead of it saying beauty like the ESV, it may say, uh, in all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. It may say all of its faithfulness is like the flower of the field. Its promises are like the flower of the field. Its goodliness are like the flowers of the field. This is all the major translations, all what it says. But what is the idea? 
because this is really the word that makes the whole thing significant. All flesh is grass. Now, before we get to that, it's really important that we understand what he's saying because this is the very voice of God saying to a great prophet, say this to the people. All flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. Say, okay, of what significance does that have to me? Well, it actually has great significance. I went back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament and uh, they make a particular... Um, connection here that I, that I think is definitely there. And here's what it says. This is from the Greek translation here. This is written in Hebrew, but they were using a Greek translation at the time of Jesus and the apostles. And it says this, All flesh is grass, and the glory of mankind is like the flowering of grass. See that? But previously it says, The glory of the Lord shall be seen, and all flesh shall see it. So here's, what, here's the idea. If you lost me there for a second, or if I lost you, or if you lost me, someone was lost. The glory of the Lord is being contrasted to the glory of man. All flesh will see the glory of God, but the glory of man will fade away. Mankind will fade away along with his glory, and no one will see him. I think I have this in your notes here. Put this in. Man in his glory will fade away but God in His glory will remain forever. Most gloriously displayed by the salvation of sinners in Christ Jesus. This is how the glory of God is most gloriously displayed. You see, the glory of God has been there from the beginning. Now, some people think there's a contradiction in our Bible when it says light was created before the stars and the sun because that's the only natural source of light. But, you know, it's not true because the very glory of God is the brilliance of light. And so the glory of God was there before stars were there, before the sun was there. And that's what was shining. And we know that to be, that's how it will be, that there will be no need for sun or moon or stars because the very glory of God will be our light. That's how it will be. That's how it was. And, but it's not how it is right now. But still, in all of His glory... God's glory was not fully displayed or most gloriously displayed until the salvation of sinners in Jesus Christ. God chose to save sinners so that he might be put on a great display. This is his purpose, the salvation of sinners, that he might be glorified. Here's what I mean. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Think of it this way. Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then listen to this, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's the creation account, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
See, the very glory of God that was on display is, that dis- is on display in your heart if you have faith in Christ. So there are two ways to understand the glory of God. One is, I'm veil- there's a veil separating the glory of God in me, just like there was a veil between Moses and the people, and Moses' face was shining. That's still a weird situation to actually think about. But Moses' face was shining because of the glory of God, and there was a veil put over his face so the people didn't see it. In the same way, there's a veil over people's hearts that keep them from seeing the shining of the glory of God. But when one comes to faith in Christ, the veil is removed, and we can see the glory of God shining, and it illumines our heart. The same God that spoke light out of darkness spoke light into your heart. And how did he do it? By the knowledge of the gospel. See, the gospel is the glory of God. It is the radiance of the glory of God found in Jesus Christ. When God comes to bring comfort, this is next in your notes, there is nothing and no one who can prevent God from accomplishing all of his purposes. I want you to go back to my little story I was telling you. I, uh, I was uh, about to get in my car and drive home. Now, I'm a little guy. I understand that. I can't, you know, I, I'm a yellow belt, but I don't know that that means much. Okay? There is not much I'm going to be able to do. I'm just going to, let's just all realize that. There is not much that I'm going to be able to do. So I don't know what I expected to do when I drive home and there's guys outside with flashlights, but I was going to go do something. I couldn't do nothing. But it could very well have been that I get home and these guys immediately overtake me and I'm done. I'm, you know, I'm done. There's nothing I can do to protect and save my family. I'm powerless. But is that the way it is with God? Can anything overtake him? Can anything stop his plans from succeeding? Can anything take the words that he spoke and make them void? If God says it, God's word will stand forever. Just want to remind you of two passages. Psalm 33:11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever in the plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 55:11, show so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. If God makes plans and he determines how that's going to happen, he speaks things, there is nothing that can get in God's way. There is nothing that can stop God from doing what he intends to do. God can save, but he can't save me. God can save, but he can't save him for sure. God can save me, but he can't keep me. God can save, but he needs my help. God can save, but fill in whatever excuse you come up with on a daily basis. There is no but. God can and will save. This is his word, and it will stand forever. God will accomplish salvation for his people. This is our God. 
So when God makes plans, they will not fail. When God speaks, his words will not fail. And when God goes to act, his strength will not fail. God makes plans. He speaks those plans. He gives details to those plans. And then he goes to act on those plans. But what if God went to act on his plans and he wasn't able to quite follow through with what he intended? Not so with God, because the strength of God can never fail. Look at verses 9 through 11. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, and lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules before him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead those that are with young. At first, when I read this, I I thought of a passage from Revelation 22, verse 12. You may have thought of this too. It says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. That's the verse that I immediately thought of when I first started studying this passage. But did you know that both in the original language, in the Hebrew, in the Greek, and in the English, the word recompense actually has a two-sided meaning. It doesn't just mean penalty or punishment, but it can mean reward. Basically, it means compensation. If you did good, you get good compensation. If you did bad, you get bad compensation. It's what you get for the work that you put in. And it says, behold, God comes, and his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. So this is not God bringing reward to some and punishment for others. That's actually not what this is saying. But it says that God is bringing his reward and his recompense. That is, God has worked something, and he's bringing his compensation with him. And what does he do with that compensation? He's sharing it with us. says, Behold your God. The Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. First thing, number one, we have to see it this way. God is a conquering king to his people. There's two different sources of imagery here. The first one is about God as a king. And not just any old king, but a conquering king. He comes with might, and his arm rules before him, and his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. This is a king who has conquered something. And it was common to understand it this way, is that when an army defeats another army, they have the spoils of war. Everything that the other people had is now theirs. And so they would divide it up among the people, the spoils of war. So what we have here is there was a king that went out conquering, and he conquered And he got all the spoils of war. And now he's taking all these spoils and he's sharing them with his people. This is God going before us. And his reward is with him. And his recompense is before him. That is, he has conquered and now he's sharing all these rewards with us. So God comes as a conquering king to his people. He's conquered the great enemy. And now he's sharing all the rewards with us. But the second way we're viewing God here is that God is a caring shepherd to his people. 
says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those that are with young. I wonder if you remember a girl named Jessica McClure. Do you remember that name? Sometimes called Baby Jessica. Do you remember Baby Jessica? This was back in 1987, but it was still a pretty popular story um, in the early 90s. That's why I remember it. And uh, so this is what happened to baby Jessica. Baby Jessica was 18 months old, and she was at her aunt's house. And she was wandering around in the backyard and fell into a well. And the well was only 18 inches wide, um, but it was 22 feet deep. And so the toddler falls in the hole, and they call the uh, you know, rescue people, and they come over and they say, no big deal, we'll get her out in a few minutes. That few minutes turned into a few hours and calling in many, many more people to get this baby out of the well. And uh, they had to call in um, mining experts so that they could dig a tunnel next to the well and build it in such a way that it wouldn't cave in. And even the tools they tried using, they tried using jackhammers and things, but Nothing was made to drill sideways, but only down. So they had a really hard time getting into the well. Well, 45 hours later, they got baby Jessica out of the well. The story we have here this morning is about a God who makes plans to save his people, He speaks words of promise to save his people. He speaks as one who has strength to save his people. He comes conquering to save. And there is nothing that can get in his way from saving us. His plan, his word, and his strength. I want to end by looking at the different things that our shepherd will do for us this morning. And I hope we can make some application here. God is a caring shepherd to his people and that when he comes to us to save mightily, he doesn't just deliver us and then set us down, but he delivers us and he tends to us and he gathers us and he carries us and he leads us. He doesn't leave us to our own. So let's look at these different things. Number one, God will tend his sheep. Why? Because the sheep are helpless. The word tend here is meaning a shepherd and his staff and that he's keeping his, she- his sheep close and anything that might be a danger to them, he can ward off. This is what the word tend means. It means he's, he's protecting his sheep. Nothing can hurt them. Nothing can harm them. I wonder if you see the great power of God in your salvation, but maybe you have a hard time seeing the great power of God in your sanctification. Do you know that the same God who saved you is the same God who sustains you today? And He is the God not only who powerfully, miraculously saved you, but He's the one today who is tending after you. He is the one keeping you and guarding you from the enemy this powerful conquering king who when he makes plans, they're fulfilled. When he speaks, nothing can stand in his way. This is the one who is protecting you today. 
Don't second guess his power. But he will protect us and he does so today. The second thing our shepherd does for us is he gathers us. And why? Because we are lost. And we are prone to continually be lost. Jesus speaks about sheep in the Gospel of John. We see that a lot. It's a common theme. We are the sheep of God. Those who have faith in Christ are the sheep of God. Jesus is the great shepherd of the flock. This passage in Isaiah was referring to Christ as the great shepherd. It's not like, oh, that's cute, that kind of matches. No, no. Isaiah, this prophecy, was speaking of Christ and no other. He is the great shepherd of souls. And he is performing this work on us today. What is he doing? He's gathering his sheep. Why? Because they are lost and he's, he's gathering them in. When he goes to gather, do you think he's successful? Do you think this great conquering king that he is, the great priest that we know him as, is also the great shepherd who can perfectly gather and keep his sheep? He can and he does. Third, he will carry the sheep. Why? God will carry the sheep because they are weak. This word speaking of carry is talking about carrying young lambs that have not yet developed the ability to walk on their own yet. Like newborns and they're stumbling around and they can't quite walk. And so you got to get them from one place to another. So you can't just force them to walk. You pick them up and you carry them. Not only is he a powerful conquering king, he is a gentle, caring, merciful shepherd to our souls. And when you are weak, he picks you up and he carries you. I wonder if we have a hard time seeing that Savior. The one who cares. The one who knows when you're feeling weak and frail. And he desires to pick you up and hold you close and carry you. That's a great Savior. Not only that, he leads us. He will lead his sheep. Why? Because they are weary. This word for lead means a specific thing. What are we being led to? He is leading us to water and to rest. It speaks about taking sheep to a watering hole where there's shade so you can drink and lie down and rest. This is our great shepherd who leads us to water and to the rest of our souls. I wonder if you feel weary this morning in your soul. And you need rest. And you need to be revived. And you wonder, how can I get this rest? I'll tell you this morning, there is no other way to find the rest and comfort for your soul than by trusting completely on Jesus Christ and none else. There is no other shepherd of your soul. There is no other conquering king coming to save. There is no one with greater plans. There is no one with greater words. There is no one with greater strength than Jesus Christ, our Savior. This morning, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper. 
And I hope that what we'll do when we take the Lord's Supper this morning is that we will reflect on the character and nature of Jesus Christ. That we will see how the glory of God is displayed in the gospel and that it was God's plan, it was his determination that the way he wants to be glorified in this world is to save sinners of who we all are. We are the sinners, the ones saved. We are the ones fallen down the well to our certain death. When Christ came and powerfully saved us and not only delivered us from that, but cares for us continually and keeps us in his arms. Today, we are prone to forget that we are the sheep of our great shepherd. We are prone to think that we don't need him to lead us today. We don't need him to carry us. I have my own strength. We don't need him to lead us or guide us or protect us. I can do that on my own. Now, when I get in trouble, I'll come and look for you, but I'm fine today. And when we're prone to think that way, that's when we slip into sin, into selfishness, into pride, into error. And we think we've got everything figured out. I can manage my relationships on my own. I can manage my work schedule on my own. I'll manage my anger on my own. I'll manage my gossip on my own. I'll manage whatever it is myself. I don't need anyone to come along me, come along beside me and help me. Most of the time, it's because I don't think there's anything wrong with me. So why would I need someone to care for me if there's nothing wrong with me? But this is the grace that we find in the Lord's Supper, is that we must be continually reminded that we needed a Savior to come and die and be raised from the dead in order for us to have life. Why? Because none of us are good. We needed someone who was great to come and save us and be our substitution before God, to take our penalty for sin. We needed him, and we need him today. We not only need him as our great Savior, we need him as our shepherd today. Because our soul will wander, and it will be weak, and it will be weary, and we need someone to care for our soul. That will not be found in self-help books, in your spouse, in your children, in your job, in your money, in your health. Stop looking in those places for a satisfied soul. You will find nothing but stress, anxiety, worry, and feeling overwhelmed in those situations. You must go to the shepherd of souls. You must go to the only one who can bring comfort to your soul. What does that take? It takes a recognition of sin, and it takes a humble heart to bow down before him and say, I need you to carry me. I recognize that I am weak, and I lay here. Pick me up and take me wherever you would take me. I want to go where you are. That's, that's what we need. That's what we have to recognize our life is not our own to live. Our life has died. Our new life is to live to Christ. Amen. But we think that God gave us life so that we can live for ourselves. 
He gave us life that we might live in glory to God. This is what we must do with our life. And we can't do it on our own. But the very shepherd of our soul has given us the spirit to live inside of us, to bring us conviction of sin, to give us gifts, to give us unity in the spirit of God. He hasn't left us alone, but we think we're alone. And we think that there's no one around guiding us and caring for us and shepherding us. We forget that we are part of a flock and we think that we are all alone. But you are part of the flock of God if you have faith in Christ. So here's what I'll call you to do today. What I believe the word of God is calling us to do today. Recognize your Savior and fall in his arms to care for you. There is salvation nowhere else, for there is no other name but Christ alone. I believe many of you have trusted in that for salvation, most of you. But I believe that there are some who stop relying on that for their continued sanctification in this life. Jesus saved me, fine, now I'm on my own. It's not how it works. You need Christ to save you and sustain you. Let him sustain you today. What does that take? Confession of sin and reliance upon him. So I will ask you today to confess your sin before him. Stop acting like you're not a sinner and start recognizing and admitting that you are a sinner continually. We are sinners in need of the grace and mercy of God, and you know what? We have it by faith in Christ. Repent of your sin today. We find this all throughout the scriptures. A wicked, rebellious people that don't want to admit they're wrong. That's all we are. That's all all of us are all the time. And about 80% of you just smiled when I said that. Well, because it's true, isn't it? That's what we are. We are wicked, rebellious people, but yet saved by the grace of God. Are you thankful today? Is your soul full and satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone? Because I think it wants to be satisfied in other things as well. So when we come and we take the Lord's Supper today, what we are saying is, I am feasting and satisfying myself on nothing else but the nourishment found in Christ Jesus. And if you are saying this morning that there are other things that you want in life to satisfy you, then I guess we need to add other elements to the Lord's Supper. We need to add money up here so you can find your satisfaction in money. We need to find, I don't know, someone representational of the hospital to give your health you know, we need, to, we need to have all these different things up here so we can symbolically say, I don't only find my rest and satisfaction in Christ, but all these other things too. But the reason that we have just the blood and body of Christ is to say, this is all my soul needs to be satisfied. This is it. I need nothing else. So until you get to that point this morning, do not come and take the Lord's Supper and make a mockery of the gospel. 
confess your sin before him, humble yourself before him, fall in his arms to care for you and guide you in this life. Stop being that rebellious sheep who wants to constantly run, but instead one that comes to the Savior, who submits to the Savior. That's, that's the people we want to be this morning. So the scriptures tell us, whenever you come and you take the Lord's Supper, do it in remembrance. Do it in remembrance of me. But then we are also told to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But then we are also told to look inward and to examine ourselves we need to look at what christ has done we need to hold on to the promises of what christ will do do you know the same god who promised that jesus would come the first time is also the god who promised he's going to come that second time he will come make no doubt about it he will come where is the promise of his coming people said even years just few years after christ was here where is the promise of his coming Oh, he's coming, but he's not coming on your time frame. He's coming on his own, and he will come at just the right time, just like he did before, and we will be with him in glory. But until then, to live is Christ and to die is gain, but today we are living, and so we have to put off our old self and put on Christ, and so we will confess our sins today. We will rely completely on him today. We will come and we will remember what he has done. We will proclaim his death until he comes. And we will reflect on the inward person today and confess our sins before him. So we'll take the time to do that now. And I also just want to remind you that when you come today, there is nothing magical in the cracker or the juice that we are consuming today, but is a symbolic representation of the body and the blood of Christ, what he has done for us. And this has been set up for us as an ordinance of the church that is practiced for thousands of years in remembrance of Christ, but also from the last supper that he had with his disciples. And when we break the bread, we know that the body of Christ was broken for us. When we drink that juice today, representational of his blood, we say the blood of Christ was shed for me. And so we eat and we drink to the glory of God not to the glory of ourselves. And I just also have to remind you of the warning that comes with the Lord's Supper. No one should take the Lord's Supper without first examining himself because it says the discipline of God will come on those who do not examine themselves. So what that means is we have to look inside. Is there any sin that's not confessed before the Lord confess it? Is there anyone in this room who I need to be reconciled with, go and be reconciled to them. Confess your faults to them and ask for forgiveness. And those people on the other side of it, forgive. This is what we have to do. And again, it is a grace of God and a time for great joy for us as a church. So um, uh, those serving can come up this morning and uh, I will pray for us. And uh, after we pray, um, we'll be singing two songs together. And any time during these two songs, any time. Uh, so I'll ask you guys to stay up here uh, the whole time during these last two songs to give people time whenever they want to come. Um, just come up any time during these last two songs and take the Lord's Supper, but do it on your own timing. Sit and pray, sit and sing, read your Bible, 
pray with another person, whatever it means for you to reflect, to look forward, to look on what he's done, to examine yourself, whatever that means, you need to take the time to do that this morning. So make this time meaningful uh, for you and and uh, rejoicing in the Savior together. So I'm going to pray, and then this time will be yours.